We're going to look into our selected text, which happens to be Esther chapter 5. Now, I don't, I don't believe there's an Esther rest of the book. Uh, we're covering that per se. Um, we will make mention of it. Not, not, it is a big section here. We're going to try, try our best now. Keep in mind, we did have the promotion. We don't have an evening meeting. So if you just bear with me for a little bit, we'll try to, to cover some of the selected texts. So we're going to Esther chapter 5. The selected text is 5 through 8. Esther 5 through 8. Now, let's just look to the Lord first, and then we'll make some some opening comments about it and see where the Lord takes us. So let's pray. Our Father, we just thank you for this day. We just ask you to open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. In Lord Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Okay, so Esther, I don't know what you think of when you hear the book of Esther. I don't even know if anybody has ever done a study or ever read through, maybe read through it. Um, It is a rather famous story, I would think. Uh, Many people are familiar with it, especially in the the Catholic world. They add some additional books to their, their Bible. You'll find one there. It's called Judith, which is completely, um, it's not like this one, definitely not like it at all, but it's a heroine that ends up becoming uh, used by God to bring salvation to the people or her people, the Jews, in that time. And so Esther, now we're, we're picking up in uh, really right in the middle of the entire book. So the book is divided by ten chapters. So we're we're picking up in the middle of the story. So we just want to met, uh, to mention just a little bit about what uh, is going on, and then we're going to uh, to hopefully get through as much of the content as we can. So where we're at uh, when we think of Esther, she's in the middle of her story. So the the story is is that the people or the children of Israel. Um, some of them are still in exile. Now, at the time of Esther, there's already been a group, the largest group has gone back to their homeland. The largest group with uh, Zerubbabel has gone back to uh, Jerusalem. Remember, they were taken out forcibly by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians were then replaced by the Medes and the Persians. So where we're at right now is Esther's living in that area, that, that crescent area, but it's being controlled by the Medes and Persians. So the Babylonians are gone. They're no longer uh, the seat of power there in that area. It's the Medes and Persians. So they've taken over. And so we're looking at about, I don't know, just give or take. It's, it's definitely more than 70 or 80 years because right, uh, Zerubbabel has already gone back. The people were going to be in exile for at least 70. But like anything... There's people that are get left behind, right? Maybe they don't want to go back to the ancestral land. Maybe they are disobedient to God, or maybe they just they just couldn't, right? So they are stuck here in this land because they were taken and relocated forcibly. So Esther is one of them. Also Mordecai, who's being taken care, who's taking care of her. So she's in. Think of the think of the setting. You're in a hostile land. You are submitting yourself to a government who's not pro-you, right? They came from a place that was pro-Jewish uh, faith, pro-their beliefs. Now, sometimes the government, the, the kings, uh, when we look through the Bible, they're very wicked. 
They're very evil. But now you're coming to a foreign government. And how much more difficult it is to follow God in that situation when they're not promoting it and they're not allowing you or pushing you towards it. And that's exactly where we find her is this small little excerpt of of a person who's in this hostile environment who then is who who's placed in a situation to bring a great deliverance. And it almost seems like how in the world did that happen? You know, there's a term that um, you might hear and maybe sometimes it even slips out of your mouth, uh, your mouth because you just hear it so much is like, oh, they just got lucky or I just got lucky or, oh, man, that's just the luck of the draw. Well, that's not that doesn't exist right in the Christian world. We don't believe in that. We don't believe that there's uh, that time or father time or some cosmic entity is is shaking dice and throwing it. And that's the way the cookie crumbles for us, as it were. No, we believe that God is in control. And that's exactly if there was one word that I could put over this uh, book, really, you could put it over the entire Bible. Right. But is is providence. God in control. Now, I, I like this definition. This is actually found in, in Merriam-Webster. But if you want to get an idea of what I'm talking about, and this is how they dece- this is how they define it. Now, of course, these are not godly individuals, but they say this it's God conceived as a power sustaining and guiding human destiny. Now, imagine that in that situation. Remember, no control of what you're you have no control over what's going on and and you have external forces pressing down on you right remember she found herself in a situation where she was taken as a consort to the king can you imagine that i don't know who would willingly want to go do that let alone let their own daughters go and do that but that was the law of the land they had to right and so they had to relinquish some of those freedoms and some of their i would say morals right to to some, to, to live there, right? to, to not lose uh, their life. But God is able to work regardless of what we think is an impossible situation. What do I mean? Well, how can God bring about a deliverance in such a situation as that without, you know, if, if it was me, you know, and, and, and I had to bring uh, some kind of deliverance, you know, I would want to be something because, you know, there's an affinity, I guess, with superheroes, but something like Samson, you know, just flying in, carrying doors on my back, you know, breaking people with a a jawbone of a donkey, things like that. But God doesn't have to use that because sometimes you read Judges and it's a woman pounding a a tent peg into somebody who's sleeping. Sometimes he uses a guy who's just beating uh, 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 wheat in his his produce in in uh, um, in the cover of evening because he's so scared. He was a timid person. So what's the point? is that God can use, he can do anything he wants, but he can use whatever tool he wants in his arsenal. And, and that's exactly what the New Testament uh, calls us to, to be, is to be tools used by him. Um, when a person goes into their cupboard, or cupboard, I don't even know if that's a real, sounds like an old, pers- uh, old word, you know, like cupboard, uh, into their cabinet, yeah, that's a better one, into their cabinet to pull out a, uh, a cup, you know, you've got, now, in my house, I, I just pick the plastic cups regardless, you know, but uh, once he gets upset, you know, when guests are over, she wants the shiny forks and she wants, you know, it's just plastics is more, it's more uh, practical. You know, you drop it, it doesn't break. But, you know, when you have uh, honored guests over, you bring out that dish that would be honorable or that would be something more appetizing to look at. And that's exactly what God has. He has a cabinet 
And in there are his, his, his followers, right, his Christians. And he brings in and he pulls out these different dishes. And what the scripture says is cleanse yourself. It tells you to cleanse yourself from, right, those dirty dishes. Now, can God use a dirty dish? Absolutely, right? I mean, we don't have to uh, show a show of hands, but you can look in your own life. And the requirement for God to use you doesn't mean that you need to get your life in order. God can still use you. God's going to get his plan done and what he wants to do, regardless of if you're cooperating or not, right? But what I want to do with my responsibility is to be available. When that time comes that he can pick me up and use me as a tool. Um, Isaiah talks about uh, when um, the, the person is, is complaining, right, about the way they're being used. You know, it, it, it's almost a comical thing. Um, I don't really have a tool to, to visually show you, but the idea of somebody picking up an axe and then, you know, the guy's chopping, or maybe he's like this, chopping, and the axe turns around and says, man, what are you doing? Why are you chopping me like that? The person wielding it has the power, right? It's not the actual tool. But we tools, like sometimes we don't like the way God's doing things in our life. And we say, you know what? We know better than that. We want to be the one. The, the person wielding it is the one that controls the power. It's not the tool wielding the arm, right? That would be kind of weird, you know? Like it doesn't even make any sense. But sometimes that's the way we act. We act as if we're the ones in control, but that's not the case. God's the one that's in control, right? And regardless if we're going to fight against him and what he's doing or whether we're going to abide by it and go along with it and be useful to him is the question, right? And so that's, that's, re, that's really where I would like to be, right? I want to be that one, that tool of honor, right, or that vessel of honor that God's going to use as a conduit, right, to bring about something. That's maybe not just... Maybe not in this kind of scale. I, I don't know. There are Christians, right, that have been used in such a scale as this, right? A, a, a nation deliverance out of this um, hostile government. But sometimes it's something on a, lo- on a local scale. But the responsibility of the Christian, right, is not to continually stay as vessels of dishonor, but wanting to cleanse yourself of those things, right, and be fit for the master's use, right? We want to be those ones that are willingly tools in the master's hands, and so God in control, right? God is able to do whatever he, whatever he pleases, right, um, by his will. And he is the power sustaining and guiding of human destiny. Considering this, um, this is all when we're talking about this, this story of Esther, because it's just one thing after another. And you think, oh, that's just luck. No, no, that's God moving, right? So when we think these things, I'm just framing the, the book of Esther with this. And also... When we talk about promises, we always said that God is in control. There's three levels I like to, to look at this. Now, there's other verses um, in Scripture, but I just want to highlight these three levels where we see God is in control. Now, again, you know, when we're down, uh, especially when things are, as it were, going haywire and going out of control, we feel things are going in different directions. And, I, and, I, and you know, for me, I, that's, that's where I like. I like to be in control of things. Now, God's been working with me, right, to show me that I'm not, right? But I think, I, like, I, I think my life works better when I'm in control of it, which is completely, you know, it's a false. But God is in control, right? And so to, con- to commit everything to him and to rely on him because of who he is. So he's in three different levels. Now, first one I wanted to put atomic, but then once I saw these uh, TL and AL, I tried to 
to make it all like a little acronym and, you know, following the, the nice little outline. So we're going to look at God is in control at the fundamental level. The, the very elements that we see, the powers that we have, con, uh, have problems actually seeing with our naked eye, he controls it. In Colossians 1.17, it says this. It's just a small little verse, but how much, uh, how much uh, impact is in that little verse? Look, at he is before all things. That means there's nothing that is before him. He's at the very top of the food chain, as it were. And look at this, this little, few little words. And in him, all things hold together. That means that these powers that people, uh, I don't know if you've ever looked at um, maybe uh, uh, those who look up into the stars and astrologers, they wonder what in the world is keeping you know, these stars. And they say, well, gravity. But then they start talking about like this negative energy and negative uh, antimatter and all these things that there has to be something pushing against it, right? When you're pushing something, right, that, that's the laws. There's something else going against it. Well, what is it that's keeping everything together? Why is it not just completely all just, uh, that's what a nuclear explosion is, right, is, is the splitting of the atom. That's why it's so destructive. But who is it that's holding it all together? Well, the Bible tells us it's Jesus Christ. He holds it all together. Now, that's at the very fundamental level. That's at the, the material level. Now, it, if that wasn't enough, right, if God can do that, do you think he can control uh, you think he can hold together my life? Absolutely. Do you think I have the uh you think I should have the um the faith to put uh, um my life or or what I want to control and turn it over to him that he's able to do it? Absolutely, right? Because if he can do that at the fundamental and the atomic level. But it's not stop there. There's also the global or the governmental. Um this is in Daniel 4. We I just highlighted one of the verses, but this is Nebuchadnezzar. And while he's, um, it's, it's, it's the one chapter that Daniel is not dictating. Uh, well, he may have, but it's about Nebuchadnezzar. And it seems like he's writing a letter. letter. But in the, and, uh, it seems like towards a, one point of his reign, God has a direct interaction with him. He probably had others, but it wasn't as, as recorded as this one is. But the one, the one truth that Nebuchadnezzar had to, had to learn, Nebuchadnezzar was at the top of the world. He was the, the uh, of the known world, he was the ruler, right? There was nothing that was not conquered by him because he was directed by God to do so. God gave it to him. But there was something he needed to learn because he got very, pro, uh, he got very proud. Is that um, God told him that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and he gives it to whom he will. Now, sometimes we think about this and this slips our mind because, you know, in this kind of in this country, you know, there is um, the recognized government is a democracy, even though there's only two parties really that you can select from other than that. But, you know, we kind of could select our leaders and you think, well, that's the people's choice. Well, really, it's God, the one that puts these people in power. Now, what let's say, oh, we, Donald Trump and everything, all the things that he's doing is bad or whatever, whatever your, your leaning is and what you feel about it, you know, as a Christian, it changes my perspective of things. If God's the one that's putting these people in power, now, if I'm going to go ahead, now, let's just bring it down a little bit, further, uh, little bit lower. Let's not talk about that level. What about that boss who's over me that's very antagonistic? He's been put there or she's been put there for a reason, and now God has put me under them. So if I can just uh, get that perspective that God is the one who puts people in power, he's in that control he has that control, 
right? As a Christian, right? That brings things into perspective. So when I'm saying, oh, this boss or, oh, president this, and I can't believe he did that, who, who am I actually talking against? Well, God, right? Now, are they doing, you know, are they God's man, as it were? You know, some Christians, they want to put in, you know, God's man in the White House. I mean, I don't believe any of that, but, you know, God is the one that puts these people in power, right? We don't need the, we don't need, uh, your boss doesn't mean to be a Christian in, in promoting values because we live in a world that's anti-Christian, as it were, right? They are in rebellion against God, right? We were brought out, we were saved from that. So the system is still, right, against God, right? One day will be corrected, but this world is hostile to the things of God. But God is still in control. Now that, that's, for a Christian, right, that, that's a big relief to understand that, that, and also to get things in perspective, especially when we want to uh, maybe speak out against our situation, but understand that he is in full control. He's in control at the fundamental level, the atomic level. He's also in control of the global or the governmental, but also the personal. Uh, this is uh, found in Proverbs 21. But it says this. It says, The king's heart is a stream of water, and in, in, in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. See, some of these things, it's just, for me, I, I don't know about you, when you, when you start thinking of it, it's, it's hard to wrap your mind around it because we have, we have our own will. God did not make us um, pre-programmed and say, well, this is the way you're going to walk, and um, you're going to do this, and you're going to eat breakfast at 7.30. You know, he didn't do it like that. He, there is a, there's an element of free will, right? Adam you know, was at one point before the fall, right, continually walking with God because he chose to do so. And then when God came back down, Adam chose not to because sin entered in, right? So there's an element of free will. But God is able, right, and I, I don't know how this, you know, how these two things can uh, reconcile, but they do, right? I believe it. But God, in individuals' life, right, God turns the stream of their hearts, right, as he wills. And so sometimes... Right, It is where it's a direct thing, where God gives you a direct vision or a person or like, like Saul, right? On the way to a city to basically terrorize Christians, he meets God, right? The, the God of, of heaven. And he in, in, uh, directly intervenes, right, to, to turn his life around. But in any case, he's in control of the personal level. Those three levels, when we think about these things, um, it really plays into this story because when we, we start seeing these elements move around, you say, wow, look at this. That's just coincidence and, oh, that's the luck of the... Well, no, it's God moving, right? And let's just, let's just start reading because uh, we just want to make some further comments on this. But looking at... Um, we'll just keep that up because we'll be ref, ref, uh, referring to it uh, throughout the, uh, the message. But I actually want to start in four. Because four, uh, just the last few verses, because four really also frames what's happening in, in five. But it says this. What, now, this is, remember, Esther now is already taken to the, um, she's selected as the queen. Uh, the king was delighted in her with his uh, one night with her. And he then is, um, she got selected, right? So she's in this, she comes from a place of, of no power. Now she's in a place of power and prestige. But this plot uh, devised by Haman is, is, uh, is going to affect her, right? Because she is of Jewish heritage. So it says this, 
Mordecai and told, uh, and this is verse 12, and they told Mordecai what Esther said, um, and Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. So they're in a position, right, they can't directly, it looks like they can't directly talk to each other, so they've got to send messengers in between because she probably is in the palace. He's down somewhere by the gate. But he says this, he says, Do not think for yourself in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the Jews. Now, the edict, just to remind you, was conceived by this, this man, Haman, who's, as far as I know, the only title in Scripture that um, is re- given to him is the enemy of the Jews. But he, in, in basically what, he's, what he uh, proposed to King Ahasuerus is that, listen, I'll give you a bounty for any Jew that's killed. So I'm going to pay money to the, the treasury, right? You're going to get money in your pocket, for anybody that in your kingdom will go out and kill some Jews. Now, you want to talk about um, living in a hostile government if you're a Jewish heritage, right? What, what are you supposed to do? I mean, who, who's not going to want to follow through, right, to get a bounty just to kill somebody, especially if that person lives next to you? And you know what? They have a really nice car, and they have the newest horse, saddle, or whatever that you want. Hey, man, <laughs> I'm going to go over there and take care of that guy that, or, that, or that lady and take over their property, right? If they're gone, I can just move in. So, they, I mean, can you imagine that? That's exactly what's about to happen. And so he's warning her. Mordecai's telling her, you're not going to be, um, you're not going to be passed by because, you, you know, even though you're in the palace, you know, you, you can be, maybe there's some enterprising other prospective queen that might want to take over, you know. She's out of the picture, you know. King has to take over, um, king has to pick another queen. Anyway, he tells us, don't, don't think for yourself in the king's palace you escape any more of the Jews. For if you keep silent, now I want you to pay attention, for you keep silent this time and relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews in another place. But you and your father's house will perish, will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I mean, what a statement. That's exactly, I think, what the, the, uh, the idea of is when John is writing by the direction of, of Jesus Christ, right? He's writing to a church, in particular, it's Philadelphia. And one of the things that he tells them is, is, listen, you got these things that are going great, but in the end it says this, let no one, hold on to what you have, let no one take your crown or seize it. What does that mean? Now, sometimes I, I, I thought about that for a while, and I, and I think what it means is this, is that God's passing out crowns for individual, right, for the things that you do in your life. And, right, there is a reward system. Now, this is, it's been about, I guess, four or five years ago that Scott DeGroff came through. But remember those blank checks, right, that God will write for the things that we can cash in. And so God has this, right? He's going to give rewards to the Christians, right, for the things that they did, or they're going to be crowns. But this is what he tells them. He says, let no one seize it. Don't be the one who's on the sideline and not being the one to be able to be used by the master, right? Hold on to it. Go out there, be the one who's going, because you can live a Christian life, as it were, pedestrian, right? On the side, well, I come in and just sit at, you know, I come to church every Sunday morning. Well, I got to do my stuff during the week, right? And, and then there's no, um, there's no uh, movement towards, right, what God's desires are for your life, right? I'm just going to do what I want. I kind of live a nominal Christian life. Well, that's exactly what he's warning the the. Flip, uh, the Philadelphia church. He says, don't let anybody seize your crown. Hold on to it, right? Be 
Follow after God with all your heart, right? Don't let somebody else seize. And that's exactly what Mordecai says. Listen, this is your opportunity. You know, whether you, you come out of it, I don't know. But maybe God put you there for that opportunity to save the Jews. Listen, God's going to do it regardless. Now, we'll, we'll mention that next. But God's going to rescue the Jews, right? He's made promises to them. Now, whether it's going to be you or somebody else, well, I would be the one to say I want it to be me, right? I want to be that one, that, that vessel of honor that God's going to use in his hand. And so, and, and down on to verse 5. So this is Esther. She ends up um, agreeing to it. She has the courage to go do it. And then we find out why, because it is, it is, um, it is, it's not like something you can go up, hey, buddy, you know, I, I want to go talk to you about, you know, what's going on. Yeah, it's not like that, right? It's a very, very different time. And actually it says here that she hasn't seen him in many days. But it says this in, in chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the near court in the king's palace and in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside of the royal room opposite of the entrance of the palace. And when the queen saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that is in his hand. And then Esther approached and touched the scepter. So the, to get an audience with the king, even being the queen herself, right, that you needed to be summoned. And so she took a risk to, to go and show herself that she wanted to talk to the king. Now, the king could have said, no, you know, I mean, it's kind of, it sounds kind of harsh, right, <laughs> to just go ahead and kill your queen. But I, mean, I guess it could have happened. It says that, that she needed to be summoned. So she, it says here, uh, actually, in before, in the chapter before that they, the the um, she hasn't been summoned in many days, so it was it was uh, something where the king was the king, right? He was he he made the he made all the they called all the shots, and if he didn't want to talk to you, well, you could lose your life, right? And so Esther went in there and she got favor, so she came in and touched the golden scepter. I mean, some of this stuff you think it's almost like a cartoon, right? Like kissing the ring and all that stuff. I mean. I mean, I don't know, my mind thinks about this, that, you know, this was real, right? This is not something that you, you joke about, but she actually was risking her life to come in and do this, and so she had to go through this, this motion of touching a scepter. But in any case, she gets his audience, and listen to the words she says. What is it, Queen Esther? This is King Ahasuerus. Now, listen, this guy's not pro-Jew. He's not, he's not Hebrew origin. He's not for the people. But listen to the words that he says to her. What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even half of the kingdom. Imagine that. Half of it. Now, this man is ruling of the, of the known world at that time, right? That crescent of Iran, Iraq, Euphrates. I mean, it, it, was, it was key property because you have all those rivers running through. It was fertile, it was fertile land. So this guy was, was offering half the kingdom. I mean, it could have been a bluff, but it seems to be real. It seems, at least in what he says later, too. And Esther says this, if it please the king, let the king, um, let the king and Haman come to a feast that I've prepared for the king. And the king said, bring quickly, bring Haman quickly so we might uh, do as Esther asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther has prepared and they were drinking wine at the feast. And king sa- uh, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? And it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half the kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, my wish and my request is that if I have found favor in the sight of the king, please, and if it please the king, let my grant 
uh, grant my wish and fulfill my request. Let the king and Haman come to a feast that I would prepare for him tomorrow, and I will do as the king said. So this first little section is her first banquet, right? Now, up until this point, um, this man, Haman, does not know that she is well, where her nationality is. Remember, this, this, this um, nation, uh, the Medes and Persians, has inherited, uh, really has conquered the Babylonians. The Babylonians um, went out on some conquests. Now, the, Medes, uh, the Persians did later, right? They, they went as far as actually Greece, but um, they had a lot of captives. So you had people from different lands, and he had no idea where her, her ethnic background was, but he, know, he knew that he had a beef with Mordecai, and he found out that he was, a, he was of Jewish heritage, so he didn't like them. And so her request is, now whether, you know, it's not really stated, but it sounds like, you know, maybe she, she wanted to give herself more time to rethink it, or maybe she had to go over her PowerPoint or whatever her situation was. She wanted one more day. She says, listen, tomorrow I'm going to tell you, just bring you and Haman, come to the feast. And so that's what happened. And so, but that, that night, the next, the next, sec, uh, the next um, section, we'll, we'll just continue on here. We'll, we're going to look into six, but I'll, I'll just mention it, is that Haman is on his way out. Now, he's on his way out because he says, listen, not only is the king very delighted with me, right? He was propelled into a, a place of power, but also now the queen is. So obviously he had different interactions with both um, royalties. They weren't together, as you would picture a king and queen kind of sitting in the thrones together. It was, seemed like it was di- obviously different because he didn't have much interaction with Esther. And so now he gets really happy, you know. Wow, not only am I being privileged with the king and, and being promoted, but the queen now is happy with me. But on his way out, he sees Mordecai. So, I, you know, I think um, Andrew did talk about this, but... Haman's uh, nationality, it seems to indicate, now I can't for sure say that, but it seems to indicate that he's from the Amalekites. Now the Amalekites were actually, if you look at it, they were relatives of Israel. And so they were uh, relatives of Jacob, excuse me, and they had, for some reason, they just were totally displeased with them, angry, but they uh, attacked them on their way up from Egypt up into the promised land. And God himself says that he's going to have war with his people um, throughout their generations. Now, that ends up becoming, um, coming to a close, right? God did fulfill that. But there was a time where, uh, during the time of Samuel and Saul, that there was this king, and his name was Agag. So it seems to be that, that Haman, it says that Agagite, it seems that he possibly could be from there. It would make sense why Mordecai was, you know, did not want to bow down or pay homage to this man, whatever the case is. <laughs> but Mordecai definitely, uh, as it were, stayed close to his guns, right? He, did not, he wasn't going to be uh, swayed just because this man was very powerful. So on his way out from the king's gate, now listen, this has happened in rapid succession. So from the banquet, he leaves. He sees Mordecai, and he gets angry, right? All the things that he had, you know, all, all the, he's... I, he was promoted, it looks like, to be the second, the prime minister in this kingdom. So you imagine everything this man had, everything that he has to do, because this little guy doesn't want to bow down to me, he's like so worried about it. It totally changed his, his personality. I mean, on his way out, he gets so angry, right? And he goes home and he has this uh, pity party with his wife and his friends. And 
They'd suggest, now can you imagine this, your wife suggesting to you, hey, why don't you just go hang him on a 75-foot gallows? I mean, she must have been pretty bloodthirsty as he was. But um, that was her suggestion to, to, to you know, build these very high gallows, not just gallows. Getting hanged must be awful. But actually gallows that are 75 feet tall. I mean, how in the world are you going to, I mean, you have to get up there on a, on a ladder, right? There's no elevators, obviously, but that must have been a mission. But he wanted it to be, uh, right, a spectacle, as it were, a testament. Don't cross me, or this is where you're going to end up. So he leaves, right? He goes out. He decides, oh, okay, he, he leaves the, the, the banquet with Esther. He goes home, has this pity party, decides, listen, I'm going to build a really high gallows for Mordecai. On his way back, right, he, this is all within a close amount of time. He's on his way back to talk to the king to go have him hang. He's like, listen, this guy's a Jew. I'm going to pay a bounty if I can kill him. Of course the king's going to, to agree with him, I would assume, right, because why else would he? Why else would he ever protect him? He has no allegiance to the Jewish heritage. He's not Jew himself. But it says this in chapter 6. On that night, he couldn't sleep. Now remember, remember we were talking about how God is in control. You think, oh, it's just lucky he couldn't sleep that night. Well, what does he do when he can't sleep? Well, he doesn't bring out his, you know, counting sheep. He brings out what has been happening in his, in his uh, kingdom. It's kind of funny when you think about it. The guy is supposed to be in control. But what puts him to sleep is, this, is the acts that his citizens are actually doing. So he brings out this book to find out, you know, what's been going on in the kingdom, and it's been recorded. Well, look at this. Mordecai actually uh, did something for the king on the king's behalf. It says this. It says in verse three, it says, and the king said, "What honor and distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this?" And the king's young men who attended says, "Nothing has been done to him." The king, uh, Mordecai um, saved the king through a plot that he found out through two eunuchs. And he reported to the right authorities. The king's life was saved. Now, let me mention this too about history. When you look into this guy, Hashuerus. Now, whether it's Hashuerus or Xerxes I, it actually later, um, he was assassinated, which is interesting. So the, this is not, I mean, it must have been commonplace there to be in a monarch and to have your life threatened constantly, right? Pe- people would want that position. or Maybe they are um, just angry at the, the current government. But... Uh, Xerxes actually was assassinated at one point, but not this time. Mordecai ended up uh, warning the right authorities, and these two men were actually killed. So he says, listen, he comes across this way. Was there anything done for this man and, or to honor him? Like he, 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 uh, he stuck out his neck for my life, you know, and he, I need to honor my loyal citizens. And so the king's young men who attended says nothing has been done for him. There's nothing been done. So the king says, listen, I need to honor him. And the king says, who is in the court? So remember, Haman leaves the banquet, has his pity party, builds his gallows, goes back to the king to go talk about hanging Mordecai. And guess who comes in? Uh, Haman comes in. So on his way in, he's coming in talking about hanging Mordecai. The king now wants to honor Mordecai, which he does not know this at this point. right? But they said, well, Haman's in, in, the, in the outer court. So they said, bring him in. Right, so he comes in to talk to the king about hanging Mordecai. The king wants to honor Mordecai. And so they, don't, they both don't know what, they wanna, what their agenda was. But, of course, the king goes first. And the king says to uh, Haman, he says, listen, what honor. Uh, it says this in, in verse 6. It says, so Haman came in and said to the king, what is to be done for the man who delights, for the king's delights in honor? And Haman said to himself, 
to whom the king, uh, he said, you know, he's thinking to himself, well, who, who else is the king delighting except for me? And so he really goes over the top. I mean, to me, it doesn't seem like much. I mean, king's horse and stuff like that. But, I mean, today's, I guess it would be, you know, drive one of LeBron James's car. I mean, I've, I've never sat in any kind of car that's more than 25,000. You know, imagine sitting one that's like, you know, 125, 500,000, I guess that would be the idea. Man, let that person sit on the king's horse that he's ridden. You know, something that people can recognize, that's the king's horse. That's the king's mode of transportation. Not only that, let somebody go in front of him and let a man, uh, dress the man in the king's, uh, who the king's light and honor and, you know, dress him in royal robes. Let, the, uh, let somebody lead him through the square of the city, right? Broadcast his name everywhere, right? This is what's to be done for the king, uh, who the man, uh, whoever the king wants to honor, and so the king says to Haman, he says, well, hurry, take the robes and the horse, everything that you just said, and go to Mordecai the Jew and do it. <laughs> so, so not only, can you imagine the poor guy? I mean, he was so angry for some reason at, at Mordecai, but now he has to actually go out and do everything he, he went over the top with to, to honor himself because he thought it was going to him, right? Now he has to go do it to the guy who he disdains. So he goes off and does it. Now he starts having some reflection, right? He starts thinking, well, hold on a second. I just went in here to go hang the guy, and now I went in to go talk to the king, and now I have to go honor him? Wait a second. So he goes home. This is at the end, and he starts talking again. He brings over his friends and his wife to have his pity party. He starts crying. He says, listen, this is getting, this is getting out of hand. And they said, listen, if he's of Jewish origin, they recognize this. You know, God is on their side. It doesn't actually say that. But he says, if he's of Jewish origin... You're going to fall before him. Now, why do I say that? Now, we'll look to, to wrap it up. I'm sorry I couldn't get through, through most of it, but we'll wrap it up with this thought, is that I don't think there's any more ethnic group in human history that has been per- persecuted and pursued as much as the Jews has in Israel. There are people today, now, this might sound shocking, but we'll just say there are people today that think to solve the problems in the Middle East, if you just flush Israel into the Mediterranean Sea, everything will go away. Now you say, oh, that, those, are just, those are the bad Muslims that say that, you know, the extremists. But you know, a few thousand years ago, it was Christians who were persecuting them. So, you know, the Christian world. Now whether they were true believers, I don't believe so. But no, they were doing it because they thought, well, listen, you know, they were the ones responsible for our Savior's death. They were the ones that put him on the cross. Now, of course, that's complete ignorance, right? God, that was in his plan, right, that Jesus Christ would come, and then he would be lifted up. Actually, when we were just talking about who is he that is on yonder stall, and who is that person? Well, God himself says, listen, Jesus said to him while he was on earth, when you lift up the Son of Man, you're going to know that I am he, right? You're going to know that I'm the Son of God when the way that I'm going to be crucified. And so throughout human history, right, even in our recent history, um, I don't know if you've read anything about the, the Holocaust or even gone to some of the uh, museums, but um, recently there was a story written, um, it was released on Yahoo, but they were trying to prosecute the person who betrayed Anne Frank's family. Now, I mean, I don't know what you're planning to get out of it except for solving a mystery because, I mean, all those people are long dead, right? But it was a mystery, right? They were in hiding, right, the Frank family, um, I believe it was Otto West, or there was a lady there that hid them in their attic, if you're familiar with the story. But 
Somebody ended up betraying them. Now, whether it was betrayal or the German police ended up there by accident, in any case, they were taken, right? And this is towards the end of the war, and they almost made it. But the entire family uh, was taken because at this point, the, 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 um, the Nazi propaganda, right, was trying to push out ethnic cleansing, right? And so the Jews were sent to these death camps. But the one that the Frank family, especially Anne Frank, was sent to was Auschwitz. Auschwitz. And so I started reading about this. I mean, the things that they actually sent them, systematically gassing them, I mean, it's just, it's awful to think about that actually human beings were doing that to other human beings. And in particular, it wasn't just Jews, but it, was, it turned out to be political prisoners at first, but then once Hitler's insanity started kicking in, you know, he just started to, to, uh, to push out his agenda. But there's been no uh, people more persecuted and even today, like I said, they think, listen, to solve the problems in the Middle East, just flush Israel down the toilet. Get them out of there. They're the problem. Well, who is, I mean, if the entire world and the entire system is against them, who in the world is sustaining them? Well, it's God, right? And so just like we started off before, it, it's God is in control. He's in control. And he made promises that himself he needs to keep. He made promises to Abraham long, long, some 4,000 plus years ago that his people would be as numerous as the stars. Now, there have been subsequent prophecies ever since that God needs to keep, right? All the way down to the Davidic promise, right? That there would be somebody reigning on the throne forever, that being Jesus Christ. But God is the one protecting that people. God is the one sustaining those people. So what Mordecai said was true. If you don't do it, God's going to bring deliverance through another means. And so with that, we'll, we'll just mention the rest is, is the rest of the story is that after that honoring of Mordecai, um, Esther ends up having a second banquet. Um, Haman is, and then she reveals her true intentions that she's pleading for her, her people's life and, or in hers as well. Uh, the king ends up getting angry because he, he feels like he's been duped. You know, this is somebody he cares about, and this guy has already set out bounties to kill uh, her people and her. And so Haman ends up getting hung um, on the gallows that he set up for Mordecai, and then Esther ends up uh, saving the Jews, and through Mordecai's uh, direction, they end up sending out a new edict to where the Jews can protect themselves. Now, I don't know if you've heard of the Jewish holiday, uh, Pur or Purim, or Purim. This is where it comes from, right? And so they ended up, uh, two days, ended up um, attacking and defending themselves in that foreign land, right? They even the uh, traditional Jews celebrate it today. So from that time, it actually is a lasting uh, memory that is still practiced today. So Esther ends up being used of God. And so the, the, the takeaway in the application is this, is that to get the right uh, perspective that God is in control of things, it really should bring myself and understand that even at the level where, man, I, I say this a lot because it happens to me a lot. You know, somebody cuts me off or something happens and it's delaying my plans or whatever it is. And I say, oh, I get so angry. And I say, you know what? <laughs> maybe God's bringing that for a reason, right? Not only maybe to, for my own well-being, but he's shaping me every day through things. You know, I can look at my kid or, or for you kids or maybe even family members or, or somebody that's really twisting you the wrong way. Said, ah, oh, this is so hard. Well, you know, God is in control. And his character is what, why we can have faith in him. Because one thing, he is faithful, right, to complete what he's promised. But he is a loving God, and he looks out for our benefit, right? And he wants our good. And he's not going to stop, right, until he shapes us into the image of his son, right? He's moving us towards that.
And so understanding God is in control and also being useful, right, as Esther was, right? We want to be the one to seize that crown. We don't want it to go by. We don't want to be a pedestrian Christian. We want to seize those crowns, right, those things that God has given us, the opportunities. Let's make the most of it. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for this time. We just thank you for the story of Esther. Uh, these things were written for our learning and for our benefit so that we can learn about him, Lord. It's not just a great story and we see these things and it could be maybe a good book, but Lord, um, these really happened and by your direction, you recorded it for all eternity for us to read, um, well, for us to, to learn from. And so, Father, we just pray that we do. In Lord Jesus' name we pray. Amen.